Are you struggling to find the right professional talent for your project? Are you working with a limited budget? We are so excited about our next sponsor, Casting Networks. I have personally used Casting Networks to release a number of projects for free to the industry's largest network of professional performers for my commercial work and for my very first short film, Strange Thing. Creators can manage submissions, schedule auditions, request and review self-tapes, and book top talent for their projects all in one place all for free. On Casting Networks, you can create an account and send your casting call to thousands of professional talent. So join Casting Networks, the industry's preferred casting platform where more than 1.2 million performers have scheduled over 14 million auditions. That's a lot of auditions. Visit www.castingnetworks.com slash movies to create an account for free today. Hey everybody, Alder Purcell here. The time has come. The iTunes link for the alternate is now live. You can now pre-order the movie on iTunes. Just search the alternate and it'll pop right up, or you can go to the show notes, and there's a link there uh, to pre-order the movie. It's $9.99, and it would go a long way to the success of the movie if you guys all pre-order it uh, right away. So we've been working on this thing forever. I've been talking about it on the show for seven years, and now it's finally available for people to buy. Um, these pre-orders make a huge deal uh, for the success of the movie. The more pre-orders we get, uh, the more people are going to see it, and the more people outside of my network are going to see it. Uh, we'll get some promotion on iTunes, maybe even get on the front page. If we get enough pre-orders, um, we're looking for 200 to 400 pre-orders if we can get that many or more. I know a lot more people than that listen to the show, so if you guys all pre-order the movie, uh, we'll be well on our way to having a huge success here. So thank you all for checking out the movie and for supporting the movie over the years, and um, thank you in advance for pre-ordering it on iTunes, and without further delay, here is the episode. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Vassell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out on Tuesday, September 6th. I've been lying this whole time. It's actually the September 6th, not the 13th. It's on digital and DVD. We just had the trailer drop last week and the poster drop last week, so make sure to check those things out if you haven't seen them. Yay! I am Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Speed of Life and Bread and Butter, and I'm currently in development on 37 more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. But this week, we welcome director extraordinaire Mira Minun on the show to talk about landing her second feature film, how she parlayed that job into a career of TV directing, working on shows like The Punisher, Titans, For All Mankind, The Walking Dead, Westworld, and Ms. Marvel. After that, we play another round of Eric Tom's The Game, where we figure out how to handle onset emergencies or general production development distribution distribution issues. And we also chat about how best to promote your film when it's about to be released. But first, Ulrich, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty great. I've uh, been waiting to hear more news about my movie for a while. And then on, <laughs> what was it, Thursday night or something? I, I checked my email and it had gone to my trash from earlier in the day. But my PR rep got, got reached out to me. He was like, yeah, we're starting. Uh, we're in deadline. <laughs> Check it out. We're, we're uh, going to be in this horror thing tomorrow. We're going to be this other thing. It's like all this stuff happening. So it was really exciting. So I, of course, like immediately started blasting it out to people and getting it out there, which was really cool. And it's been really exciting. Everyone seems really excited. People love the new trailer. People love the new poster, which is really cool. We don't have a pre-order link yet, so I haven't like actually started the pre-sales part of it, really. But uh, that should be coming soon. We're on Rotten Tomatoes, finally. 
family. So that's one of the things I actually want to talk to you about later. It's like what to do with previous reviews, you know, once they've already been written, but now out Rotten Tomatoes, is that how do you link them to Rotten Tomatoes? Like, is that something that I can do or do I have to beg and beg the writer to do it? We'll save that for later. Pre- you know, a little, little preview of what we want to talk about. So yeah, that's cool. I don't know if you know anything about this kind of thing, but like basically I tried to go onto my Instagram account for the alternate to like, you know, start bragging about things and I got locked out, locked out. And when I went to like get unlocked out, you know, it was like flagged for spam or phishing or whatever. The email address on there didn't look like my email address. The word, the, cause it doesn't show you the whole email address. It just shows you like the, 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 the start and the finish of it. You got hacked? And it was like, Are you I, saying I, you got hacked right now? I don't know. Maybe. I'm not sure because I didn't set up the Instagram. Someone else did on my team. And so I'm like trying to find that person who set up the Instagram to see like if some, they have another email address that this, you know, is going to that's not a, a, a scammer, you know, but they yeah. haven't gotten getting back to me. So I don't really know, but I don't really know what to do because I looked on, on Instagram and like apparently don't have, they have like support, but everyone's saying like they will never get back to you because they have too many people and like they'll just never listen to you. So like what I kind of want to do is just like delete the account, you know, so like oh. just to be done with it and move on. But like, I don't know how to do that. Oh. So if anyone out there knows how to deal with these problems that I'm having, any advice would be great because I did a little research and basically made my head hurt. And I'm like, I, you know what? Like, <laughs> I'm just going to like, like let people, you know, tag the alternate film page and follow the alternate film page. Cause it's still there. And there's not like weird shit being posted on there or anything. It's not like anything is happening with it, you know? So I think it's okay. I just, you know, I either want to get access to it or I want to delete it because, you know, I think what I'll probably do is just focus on my, my energy advertising the movie through my own personal account and not through the film one because my personal account has more followers anyways. So I don't know. But yeah, that's a little bit, a little bit of like one of those things where like everything's going so great in your life. You're like, yeah, this movie's coming out and life is good and blah, blah, blah. But like, I can't get into this Instagram. Oh, I'm hacked. Uh, and it's like making me like be upset. But it's like, why am I upset over something I have no control over? Like, this is, this is a really small thing to be upset about. And then we talked to this really great filmmaker yesterday, Jeff Bania. Is that how you say his last name? Bana, I think. Yeah. But he's going to be on the show soon. And he has a, you know, director of movies like The Little Hours and Joshy, Horse Girl, among others. And he was like, yeah, I don't even care about social media. And like, you know, I have a private Instagram account for my friends only. It's like, okay, well, maybe I should give less shits about social media. It seems to work for this guy. So I don't know. But yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's kind of how I'm doing. Yeah, n- nothing really else major to report. Still waiting to hear about, about Lifelink. End of August. Should have an update by end of August. So, I mean, it's still great. It's so funny because they're like saying like, oh, it's going to happen so fast, so fast. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'll be, you know, <laughs> I doubt it. Like, is, is it really going to happen that fast? Probably not. But then, you know, all, all of a sudden it's like it's still there. So maybe one day something will happen with it. Who knows? But yeah, how are things with you, Liz? What's going on? I was giggling a little bit when you were talking about Instagram because I was thinking about how I created an Instagram account for my dog using my husband's email address. <laughs> and we can't get into the account either. And we're completely locked out just because I f- forgot the password. Like, it's just for very silly, lazy reasons. <laughs> and I was just, anyway, I was just thinking about that ridiculous scenario of my husband being like, I can't, he can't start an Instagram account because I co-opted his email address for our dog. <laughs> but I agree, you need to solve that problem. I think you should keep the account up, Alric. I mean, like, I think you should make it active. And doesn't mean you have to post from it, but just... Just change the bio to say something like most updates coming from at 
Bursell Productions or All Work Bursell or whatever your handle. Well, I can't do that. I can't. I can't get into when you the, get in, the account right. at all. I'm saying like, don't give up the ghost. Like, keep trying and don't get. Oh, that. Right, right. Because I think uh, the sure. idea that I'm putting forth is someone's going to hear about your movie who doesn't know who you are, and so they're going to search for the alt- alternate on Instagram. Mm. And you, and if you want to mm. relay them back to you, the bio is the best place to do it. Right. Oh yeah, good idea. So it's good to have an account, no matter what, is what you're saying. I so think people you should out have an there, account. yeah, create accounts for your movies, and then if you don't use them, then you know at least let people know where they can find you, so they can stalk you on the internet. Yeah, some people really good, good love tip. Instagram and don't use Twitter or don't use Facebook. Right? It's like one of those weird app yeah. apps that people get have a lot of loyalty towards. Oh yeah. What's going on? So this episode will air. <laughs> Two days before my 38th birthday. So I'm turning 38 on August 24th. I'm giving away too much information. Someone's going to steal my identity. (laughs) So that is all I'm thinking about right now. And I take my birthday very, very seriously. It's a very important day to me. I have always really high expectations. And then I always get really disappointed every year. But this birthday, I have like a whole birthday weekend planned for this weekend. It involves water. We're going to rent a pool and we're going to go kayaking and eat pizza. And then on my- You're going to rent a pool and go kayaking. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then on my actual birthday, I have a plan of forcing my husband to eat vegan food. It's always like a really fun, like- present to myself to force him to eat <laughs> vegan food. And then we're going to go rock climbing because I've never done a rock climbing gym before. Wow. So those are the exciting things going on is just obsession with time and growing older and then celebrating with water and rocks. So that is my life. Wow. Yep. That sounds like fun. And you're going to bring your son to, to all these events nope. except the rock climbing maybe? <laughs> He's coming no to son. the pool. He's coming to the pool. That's all. Like, okay. The kayaking, the no kayaking trip. Up. Yeah. They won't. <laughs> yeah. And it's a kayaking trip that like <laughs> it's it's really intense it's in the la river it involves a bike ride they have like a weight check wow. like there's like a very there's you learn about good. water habitats yeah so we'll see <laughs> basically that's good that's yeah. good it's good they take it seriously i i, yeah. I had a, a friend of the family who died kayaking so like, <gasps> oh my gosh no you know in the ocean or at I mean, where? N- no, rivers, like like r- whitewater rafting. Oh. You know? oh. Yeah. And they're actually a tour guide. So, <gasps> yeah. Well, we haven't so, booked the tickets good. yet. So, like, this is good to know. I think you should do it. I think you, I, I went kayaking recently. It was fine. Yeah. It's okay. easy. Okay. You know, but just don't go whitewater rafting. <laughs> no. Don't do anything. We're, We're going in the LA River. The LA River is but like I a just puddle. like. Wait, like when you talk about them like doing it, like weight checks and all, it's like okay, that's good. Like I love the people who you're working with should be taking it seriously because they're oh, serious. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I love water too. I'm a huge water fanatic. I've surfed. Yeah. I've you know done it all. I haven't jet skied. That's one thing I want to jet ski. <laughs> <laughs> One day. That looks so fun. Well, my whole thing is like, I like water creatures, but I I wanted to do tide pooling, uh, but I don't know anyone who wants to get up, like genuinely wants to get up at like 4 a.m. and go to tide pools with me. So like, mm, I mm-hmm. turned it into a pool instead of a tide pool party. Everyone loves pools. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like safe. <laughs> it's COVID safe. And we can order pizza and stuff like that. Nice. But pizza and pools. That's great. <laughs> what else is great and starts with... With a P is Patreon. 
Don't forget to sort of support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. We also want to celebrate our newest patron patron and say happy birthday to Kellen Rudnicki. Thanks so much for supporting the show, Kellen. And thanks for your like communicativeness. Thanks for your chattiness on YouTube and on social media. We're just like, like we don't get a lot of people commenting. <laughs> like it's just really nice to have someone who's active. Yeah. So thank you, Kellen. And thanks for your review too, Kellen. You you did the whole thing. You like, you know, you commented on things like the trifecta. You're like commenting, you, you know, become a Patreon, and then you also leave a review. It's like you're doing all the things to help us. So we really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. But people like Kellen who have donated to our Patreon have access to bonus videos, bonus episodes, weekly team meetings, all that, all lots of cool stuff. So don't forget to check out our Patreon today. But without any more delay. Here's our chat with Mira Minan. So let's start off with, can you give us the elevator pitch for equity? The elevator pitch for equity. Equity is a female driven Wall Street thriller about a woman who's navigating a high profile IPO and the people that are sabotaging her firm along the way. I guess that's, I like barely remember what the movie's about. I hope that, I hope that summarized. <laughs> How many days did you shoot the movie? That movie, I think we had 24 princ- principal photography days and like three or four days of second unit work in New York because we shot that movie in Philadelphia for New York. And so we had three or four days in New York. I remember picking up just like shots of our characters crossing the street and things like that just to set it in the world. Mm. And then we had one weekend, I think, of pickups down the road, like closer to like when we were actually locking, which was ve- those were very sparse. But yeah. What can you say about the budget? Can I say about the budget? I mean, the budget when we were in editorial, like our budget for production was just shy of a million. And I don't recall exactly how much the producers raised to finish, but they definitely, they, they applied for a bridge loan. I remember at one point while we were finishing in the edit. And then once the movie got into Sundance, they were able to get their merry band of investors to cough up some more money to help us actually finish the film. So all in, I, I, I actually don't know. That's the thing that, that movie was very much, I was brought on as a director for hire kind of like the script had been written. The producers had raised most of those of that initial million for production. And they brought me on basically because Mark Stoloroff, who I think is a mutual friend. Yeah. He, he knew Alicia Reiner, who's one of the producers and she's also one of the actresses in the film. And he, they were like looking for a woman for sure. They definitely wanted two X chromosomes on, uh, or, you know, or, you know, like at the time that's, that, that was part of what they were looking for in the director's chair. And, and he put me forward for the job. And so I just met with them and that's how I got on board. So, so a lot of like the brass tacks of how that movie was put together as an independent film. Some of it I was involved with, but a lot of it I I really wasn't. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you answered the next question in that last answer. So I'm just going to skip to the next one. How long did you spend working on the film from being brought on to it being released? Well, that, that's, yeah, that movie was so crazy because it was a rocket ship, you know, like I, I really did that movie. Like I had made a, a micro budget film as my first film. And then I was really planning on just doing that again and again and again, you know, until 
I could get a job directing television, which I felt like, okay, that's how you make a living being a director. I read Equity and I was like, this is like, it didn't necessarily feel like something I would have like created from the ground up, but like, I definitely felt like I knew how to make it. And I definitely felt like it read like a great TV show. And that was their intention, their intention. And after like, you know, fast forward to when I'll answer your question in a second, but like a fast forward to when the movie was sold, like Sony was going to develop it as a TV show. It was very much like presented as the potential pilot for a TV show, or there was like, there were ideas for how to create a pilot of a TV show out of it. So I was like, this is going to get me a TV directing job if I make this movie, regardless of what happens to it. I don't know if any of them us expected it to get into Sundance and be bought by Sony Pictures Classics and all the things that you like dream of. Like I didn't, that was all very surprising to me from like the initial conceit of why I did it. But I had been sent the script like in February of 2015 and then we were shooting it by July and then we were in Sundance within it, with it by January 2016. So under a year and it was bought by Sony classics that year and you know so much of that story of like how it was why how and why it was bought i mean i was very proud of like i think we did like you know like a lot with very little to make that movie feel like the real deal but sundance is such a funny space i'm sure you guys like know and talk about and liz know you know very well like it's like it's a market right so like that year i remember like it was just it just happened to be a pretty hot (laughs) happened to be a pretty hot season for for buying and like and so we got got lucky a little bit you know like we were in like a really good year at Sundance where things were getting bought and like for much more than anyone expected and you can kind of look it up in 2016 what that year was like but yeah that's there's a lot of luck basically that went into the reason that movie was able to be done so quickly and actually get out there the way it did. I remember that year. I remember everyone being like really excited about the future of independent film because of the purchases that were made at Sundance. And then it all and then the bottom fell out. So compared (laughs) compared to all the other projects you've done, which are numerous, both in TV and film. How difficult was this one? Was equity? Mm-hmm. It was incredibly difficult because of the, yeah, like that, it just wasn't, it, that was more money than I had ever imagined making, you know, at least like my first film was definitely not the second, third, you know, like I said, I was like planning on just kind of doing micro budgets, 100,000, you know, 250,000 or less, you know, like th- that was the world I was really wrapping my mind around. So I have a million dollars to make a movie. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be able to do everything. And then you realize that it's like a movie about people that work on Wall Street. <laughs> who are making like a cool, like seven figures as their salary. And it's like the, their lifestyle requires a certain level of design and scale to certainly the, the sets we were shooting in and the filmmaking, you know, required a kind of finesse and kind of um, a sheen to it that was actually quite difficult to accomplish on that, that budget level. So yeah, I think compared to, I mean, TV is tight and fast and all those things as well, but I, I don't, think anything's quite as hard as trying to make a movie with with and finish a movie without you know without the money that you need to be able to do it the way you're at least dreaming and talking about doing it can you talk about like what happened right after equity was finished being filmed even like like were you immediately on the search for direct tv directing jobs or like how did that come about like was it something that happened after the movie got into sundance or was it already in progress before that like how did lead you to your first yeah. TV directing job? Between my first and second movie, I did a, a lab at Fox, Fox Global Directors Initiative is what it was called at the time. It was like 20 women from all different 
kind of walks of life within, but mainly within independent filmmaking and everyone wanting to get into episodic directing for kind of the reason I outlined, because we all have bills to pay and it's like the kind of <laughs> town, I think, you know, as far as like being able to just be on set, work with actors, direct, do your thing and be actually kind of <laughs> compensated for it fairly or generously in some cases. Um, so it was something I had very much on my mind. It was something I was very much trying to angle towards. And like I said, when equity kind of came to me, I was like, oh, this, if I could direct this, I feel like I'd really be able to like show that I can direct, you know, for Shonda Rhimes or something like that, you know, like a nice, like kind of feminist corporate drama or something, which is not the first episode of television I got. I got like something completely off the wall that had nothing to do with any of the movies that I had made. But when equity then did get into Sundance, it was such a game changer, you know, like I got an agent, you know, I had been like cold calling agencies and, you know, like doing everything I could after my first movie to try and get someone to help me get a job. And then when Equity did what it did, like it was very, it was just a real blessing because I was able to actually get that representation that like the first thing I told those guys was like, I really want to work in TV. I really want to, you know, make some money. I mean, you know, I went to film school <laughs> with Liz. So I went to also, you know, like I, I had student loan debts from undergrad, let alone grad. And and then, you know, I just wanted, I, I really felt like I needed to work. So I was like, put me to work. And so they, they were like, okay, it'll probably, it'll take some time. That's like not, can we, can we even can't, we can't just snap our fingers and help you figure out this equation. So I was lucky though, again, because a lot of this is luck <laughs> that the TV agent that they assigned me to was really like young and hungry and had just been promoted from being an assistant and really to this day I think is like one of the most brilliant people I know in terms of just putting together the pieces to things and she saw what probably that was in January 2016 I think by September of that year I got my first TV directing job and that was with a show for the sci-fi network called Blood Drive about flesh-eating cars drag racing across America <laughs> ah. about it not necessarily being reflective of my body of work up until then. <laughs> Danny, my agent was like, I think you're just going to really like these guys that are making this show. You've your vibe and they're like, I think that you guys will just get along. And, you know, so much of an effective, you know, like what makes someone effective in that world, in that agency world is having that instinct and understanding how to pair the right people and components together. And I don't think all of them know how to do that well, but she does. And, and she was right. We like met and hit it off and they just were like, we just want someone that it's like kind of like-minded that will just like be able to get along and and kind of go on this crazy journey with us in South Africa. And I was like, I'm down. And so that was the first episode I got was through yeah having like the right agent at the right time put together the right pieces. When you were in between Farrah Goes Bang and Equity and doing those cold calls and then now being where you are now and kind of looking back on that experience, yeah. was that a good strategy for you to try to find an agent at the time? Or is it that the agent comes to you when you're ready? Yeah, I think it's the latter, right? I mean, that's certainly what I... That was my experience. And it was very frustrating, you know, because I felt like, you know, I had made a movie. I had like killed myself trying to make this first movie. Flaws and all, like, it, like you know, played at good festivals, got some recognition. I thought that was enough, you know, that was my, that's what, and I remember just feeling quite angry <laughs> that it wasn't, you know. And, you know, like, I think everyone comes about, you know, that story differently. I think everyone has different experiences in this industry that, you know, like, don't 
it's hard. It's so hard because you're trying to hold on to like some path and there is no one path as we all know, but mine, I mean, maybe it was just like, you know, it would have happened eventually, but like if I had kept, kept banging on those doors, but I had a really hard time getting people to pay attention after that first movie. And it did, I did have to kind of wait for it to come to me. And when it did, it would put me in a much better position to be able to leverage that into what I really wanted. You know, like they, they were, they really listened when they did come to me. I just want to give people a tiny bit of context. And your first feature premiered at Tribeca and you won the Nora Ephron, all hail Nora Ephron prize. And still it was difficult for you. I just, you're very humble and you're saying like, oh, it's this good festivals and whatever. I just want to acknowledge like you were in a top tier film festival and it was still very difficult to get representation. I remember emailing Nora Ephron's agent at CAA and being like, I won this prize in, in Nora's memory. Like, will you talk to me? And yeah. very kind and like responded, but like kind of kicked the can down the road and gave me to, you know, like had had some other agent talk to me and was like, it's just like, you're doing well, keep going. Like it was like, it was very, they were all being very, mm. they were not like at all interested in representing me, which is, you know, I, it's, it's hard. Cause it's like, I get, they, they need someone to work with too. I had one movie. It didn't get distributed. You know, like we were very proud of that movie too, but it like we self-distributed it. It didn't have uh-huh. like, it didn't have the story that equity did, you know, of just like getting bought, like in this hot market, like, and just getting all this attention and all this stuff. So I get that those guys need something to work with too, but it was, it was very demoralizing at the time for sure. That was my next question was like, what was the distribution for your first feature like? And so you self-distributed, do you, did you see any return through the self-distribution or was it kind of like you made a few bucks and that was it? Made a few bucks and that was it, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't anything to necessarily help pay off what we had you know like we we raised money on kickstarter to make that movie and then we did a round of of financing of raising money private equity for the finishing of that movie and then with the Nora, the Nora Ephron prize came with a cash prize, which helped us like pay off our credit card debts. Like that was really what helped was like that prize at that festival to help us not be totally in the red, but distributing the movie, you know, even to this day, you know, we'll get like, you know, a hundred, $200 a year or something like people will periodically watch it, but it's not the, the kind of thing that we were ever able to really make money off of. But we also didn't do the thing that, you know, I'd, sp- I'd spent so much time at the time thinking about various revenue streams with it like could we like go to schools and could we like create like you know an educational kind of avenue for it where like we would you know create enough interest in it and uh, dialogue around it to charge speaking fees or it's just you know kind of exhibition fees at schools and like kind of political context as it was a political road movie like we were like we were thinking about all that but then you know got wrapped up in just needing to like work and do other things. So we didn't also put in all the efforts and create all the strategies that I know are available to a filmmaker who does self-distribute to make the most of it. Because also at the end of the day for us, it was also about kind of just learning how to make a movie. That first movie is so much about that, right? Like for me, it was was just like, I was trying to figure out whether it was possible. (laughs) When, okay, I sometimes I'm like, Half half cooked question. Here comes a half cooked question. We'll see if I cook it while I talk. I've talked to and Elric and I have talked to and I've talked to individually, specifically women in film who transition to TV. 
And I think, at least on my end, there's an intimidation factor. Like I step onto this set and like, I don't even know how to behave. I know that you're a great director and I know that that was a goal for you for a long time to direct TV, but it sounds like you didn't shadow before you did it. So I'm just, can you talk a little bit about expectations and reality with regard to TV directing? Yeah, I did. I did actually shadow one show. I shadowed after, because of the Fox program, I got connected to someone at HBO who connected me to Divorced and uh, I shadowed just on divorced. Cool. I got a little bit of a glimpse into what it is, but it's so, but now that I've done like 30 some odd shows, like every show is so different. There's like, there is no, I mean, to an extent you can understand, I think the thing that maybe you need to acknowledge and, and walk into it understanding is that it's not your movie. Right. And so if, if you need to disabuse yourself of that, then like shadowing is helpful to like kind of really prepare you for the ways in which that's the case, right? Like just the kind of power dynamics that happen on a, on a show when you're an episodic director, just very different than when you're making your own movie. So I guess, I mean, I, I definitely, I mean, the first show, the first show I did Blood Drive because it was so wacky, like I, and it felt like no one was watching us. Like we were in Cape Town, like it was sci-fi, like I don't, and it was so every aspect of it was so weird. Like it had, but it had all these things I'd never dealt with before, like action sequences and special effects and visual effects. And just like the, the genre element of that show was just like this aspect of filmmaking. I'd never had the privilege to engage with because it just like, you know, to me, I was always like, what is the cheapest thing I could make? Not, you know, so, so all of that, like I had to approach with you, like there was no choice. I couldn't walk in there and be like, I know exactly what I'm doing. You know, like I had to approach it with humility because I was learning as I was going on that job. And then subsequently nearly like every job I've had since, frankly. So I, I do feel like I knew, and because of the Fox lab and, and how many direct episodic directors I've listened to say some version of that, that you really have to like listen and be like a bit of a passenger, you know, like for a while until you feel like you have all the information you need to step on set and, and take control of things that like when I had got my first TV job, I felt like I understood psychologically at least what I needed to do to succeed in that environment. That makes sense. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear about like, cause you, you're talking about after your first feature, you're, you're trying to get agents and managers, like you're cold calling people. You're like, you're feeling stuck. You're feeling frustrated. And then you have this opportunity to direct this movie. Like, can you talk about how, like how you were, cause like, I'm sure it wasn't just given to you. Like you must've had to pitch for it. You must've had to done, done something to prove for it. So can you just talk about like what your process was when you were trying to win that job and like what you did that you felt got you the gig in the end? Yeah. I mean, I did, even though I said that like, it wasn't necessarily a movie I would have made. I did coincidentally write a wall street movie when I was in film school as like my thesis script was like a female driven wall street movie. But it, the version of it was much more of like a character study based on the actual, this actual real woman, Zoe Cruz, who worked at Morgan Stanley, was vice president of Morgan Stanley in 2008. She was fired for reasons basically like that turned out to be like, you know, she was basically the fall guy or fall woman for a bunch of wow. mistakes men made, you know, 
And so that's what really the story was about was being a, a woman in that environment and like how much you end up taking the blame for things, which is ultimately like equity is a little bit about that. But the script I had written was much more like if Gus Van Sant made equity or something, just like a really quiet character study. Like that was always my problem with like writing was that I was always writing these very boring scripts that I knew would be interesting if I could film them. But <laughs> um, equity read Amy Fox, who wrote it, like read like a real like corporate thriller in a way that like I was I so admired. So that's what I read it and I kind of saw it because of how well I thought it was written. You know, I do think when you're pitch and to this day, when I pitch as a director for something, it's so much my success and ability to do that so much depends on how it's how inspired I feel by the reading of the material. If it's written in a way that helps me like really see it, then it's quite easy. You know, you just like tell them what you see based on what you've read. And equity felt that way. Like I immediately was able to pull together a lot of images and created a pretty extensive lookbook that walked them through the movie. I was like, this is what I think the first sequence would look like in this, in this kind of restaurant and where the camera would be positioned, you know, in these kind of places, like it's hiding being the corners trying to understand who this mysterious woman is and and then i talked about colors and like i think this character feels like this color and that character feels like that color and you know like i think all of that stuff i was able to pull it together pretty quickly because it it just it read it 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 was that exciting to read yeah and so i probably pitched that to them like a few days after I read the script, it all came together very quickly. And I think that, you know, also just having lived in New York and knowing, you know, I went to college there. I knew people that worked in investment banking, like so many people I knew went to college with went into investment banking and just this, the, the choice to do that and be in that world and, you know, seeing people's 20s get completely submerged and kind of become completely defined by this industry young you know like people go go into that business and are dealing with such huge sums of money and kind of making huge sums of money at such a young age yeah it was just a world i knew and had spent some of my 20s around though i never partook (laughs) (laughs) in having money (laughs) i didn't yeah i I didn't uh, figure out how to have money for a very long time but yeah, so all of that stuff, I think, helped convince them that I knew the world and that they could trust me in like handling, you know, the, the telling of this story. Oh, quick follow up. Sorry, Liz. You don't have to say the exact number, but can you just talk about what your fee was or if you got a fee on equity and like how you negotiated that? Because I think that's also really important things for filmmakers to know if they're going into like their first hired job. Yeah, no, I mean, you guys are asking the questions that no one ever asks because it wasn't great. And I didn't advocate for myself and I didn't have a lawyer and I was just desperate to do something, right? Like I was like, how am I going to make a career out of doing this? They paid me 18 grand. At the time I was like, okay, (laughs) I'm going to move into my parents' house and make this movie. You know, like I, my parents lived in New Jersey, so I like didn't have to pay rent for the year. I, we like rented out our place in LA and my husband and my then fiance and I just moved into my parents' house in New Jersey for a year. And I made that movie commuting the same bus I commuted into the city. And when I was a teenager, like I, it just felt like regression. And so many, I was like, it was the biggest opportunity of my life. Like, but I, in so many ways, my life felt like a giant regression. <laughs> Having no money and all this stuff. I mean, like, so, you know, I think I could, I probably could have like pushed for more or kind of asked for, you know, I didn't, I just didn't have that yeah, sense of self, sense of self-worth, all those things. And then I didn't have, you know, a team around me to, to help me 
understand that that was not okay. It was not a union project, right? Like, so that's the other thing. Getting into the DGA and being protected by the DGA in terms of that stuff has been a real game changer for me as someone that never could advocate for myself in terms of that stuff. So yeah. Wow. I think Ark and I are going to toggle you back and forth between certain <laughs> topics because I'm jumping uh-huh. back into TV again. And it's, I love what you're saying about approaching things with humility. I also think, though, that at a certain point, like you were saying, you take control, you influence the show within your own box, right? As director, I understand it's a, it's a writer's medium, it's a producer's medium. Can you talk about instances where you actually got to have influence? I mean, is it in the design of the shot list or what is it exactly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it again, totally depends show to show. You know, some shows have such a defined camera language that your ability to shift things really comes in how you choose to block the scene. There are some shows that I've done that where the camera language, so different, like a, the first, the one that always comes to mind is Queen of the South was a show that was three ca- a three camera show, every scene, three cameras handheld. It's just like, they just hose everything down. It's very documentary style or very, it, it just, it, it's, it's very much following, but the, the way you have input on a show like that is, is through the blocking choices and through locations and how you, how you map out how characters are going to move through space. Cause the camera will follow the actors, but you have to, and so the only place you can kind of put your hand, fingerprints on things is, is the way you help kind of shape that part of it. Then other shows like, I mean, there's a couple of shows I've done that were in their first season. So where the camera language was really just starting to figure itself out. Right. So like for all mankind is a show that I was fortunate enough to do in the first season. And, you know, the first episode I did was like the first episode that took entirely, that took place entirely on the new lunar base that like people were going to go live on. And the point of the episode was that like, it was an impossible scenario that they were all like living right on top of each other. And they were all getting extreme cabin fever because you can't just like step outside for a breath of fresh air on the moon. And so are we, you know, we, Together, me and the DP talked a lot about creating that sense of claustrophobia and found a lot of, and we were the first ones to shoot on that set. So that really felt like we were establishing the thing. And so we talked about like, you know, where, what camera positions on that set made the space feel the most compressed and how to, how and where to put people to make that sense of claustrophobia the most heightened it could be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think that it just depends where the show is at and its run, if it's early, if it's late, and then just what is the built-in kind of scenario, like, and, and is there any wiggle room there? There's always the ability, though, I think, to help put your imprint on it through, through blocking and rehearsals and the way you work with the actors and all that stuff. You know, that is your domain, like that blocking rehearsal is yours. And of course, it's the actors, you know, like, as well, it's you and the actors, like having your time together. And so that real, if you have a good relationship and rapport with the actors, I think you can do a lot in that, you know, in that time period. So first off, I love For All Mankind. And that episode, Hi Bob, that you're talking about is like one of the best episodes of the show. So amazing work. Yeah, it's a really cool show and an episode. But Ron Moore wrote, it was so crazy to me to show up at a table read, like my name on a placard right next to Ron Moore and (laughs) sit there listening to this script being read that he wrote. And he's like, talk about, I mean, he's such a humble, like normal guy. I didn't even realize it was him when I sat down. (laughs) Wow. He didn't. Yeah. And he's just the, the coolest. It was very, very intense and amazing. 
So the question I want to ask is kind of about, like, when you get into a show like that, that's, like, got a big budget, it's, like, you know, big names, like, fantastic cast, you know, is it different than being on, like, another show that, like, might be a smaller budget show? Like, do you feel like your job as a director is easier to do in those kinds of situations? Or is it kind of like you have your tool sets you have and, you know, it's kind of the same approach? Or does it just, or does it, does it actually feel different on a show like that? You know, it's hard. It just feels because I wonder, I ask myself this too, because it always, it never feels that different. And I'll say that's because like the infrastructure of each of these shows is built around the scale of the show, right? So, you know, For All Mankind had like, you know, I block shot two episodes. I was shooting for like 24 days. I was shooting for the length of a feature, right? So like, I felt like, and every day was different. Some days were like really intensive visual effects days on the surface of the moon. And other days were like, you know, small scenes where two characters are meeting at a poetry reading at a bookshop in Van Nuys or something, you know, like it's like the every day. I think the thing about a show like that is that every day feels very different. And you feel like you're doing like so many different shows in one show. And then other shows, you know, like Queen of the South or I did, I did You. I mean, these are shows that like are faster, like the schedules are much tighter. It's like six or seven days for an hour long episode and and there's like one main character driving the story right so it's like that feels very different because like and that feels like making a short film or something you know but my job is always just some kind of kernel of of working within the kernel of myself right the actors the ad and the dp like that tiny village is like it, it never really feels bigger than that even if the show is bigger that makes sense. Mm. That's the best part. That's what's <laughs> that's what's so exciting about doing it. I'm going to make the assumption that you're also pitching and working on feature films while you're working in TV. And can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the parallel of doing that work and also maybe even the success rate and experience? I know that, I mean, we've all said it and heard it millions of times that there's work and money in television and independent films are very hard to get off the ground. So I'd just be curious about what, what your personal experience has been uh, with that. Yeah, I mean, I when I, I mean, up until this year, I really wasn't working on films very much because I was just doing back-to-back episodes for like five years, you know, something like that. Once in a while, a movie project would come, like a studio movie would come along that I'd pitch for, but I was mainly pitching for pilots and for shows, you know, because that really became my world. But now... I've been taking this year to kind of re-engage the feature idea. And so your question is like something I'm going to be figuring out in real time is like, what does that even look like in this day and age for me now that I like have, you know, done all these other things? What does a movie project look like and why am I doing it? I mean, I literally, I like, go to therapy to ask these myself these questions at this point because I don't know. It means something very different now. You know, it's not about a career. It's about, you know, I mean, for me, it was always like, I was just making movies before because I, I loved doing it, but I was really like focused on just trying to figure out how to be a working director, you know, because I don't, I didn't understand how to just focus on the artist. The, the thing that I wanted to say, though, they're, they're, though they're, that's always in there, you know, like it wasn't, I never felt like I could just do that because it always felt like it needed to have some result or there needed to be some reason or ability to leverage it into, you know, a situation in which I'd be able to like sustain a life as a filmmaker. And now the questions are different now that I feel like, you know, I can feel a little bit more steady working in TV and, you know, like things like that. Like I can answer making a movie can mean something different to me now. And I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. 
quick follow up to that. Have you been saying yes to jobs for five years because of a because you're trying to bolster that sense of stability or because or because your attention just turned to television for those five years and the passion supported that? Well, it's both, you know, like I definitely felt this like, I don't know, <laughs> immigrant need to like, you know, just uh, to find stability to make my parents feel like <laughs> it's going to be OK. That probably was the ground, the primary motivating force, but also I just felt like I got so lucky, you know, like it just was like, how, I, like, how could I say no? Like I, I, I just felt like I needed to enjoy the feast before me, you know? And now I'm realizing, okay, now I'm at the point where it's like saying no will give me more choices than saying yes in some scenarios, which is a really great place to be in, but it's different. And it's actually hard for me because I'm so used to just like, you know, going where the opportunities are like equity. Equity was a perfect example. Like I think there were some red flags, like how much they were going to pay me and like all these things. But like, I was just like, yes, let's do it. Like I was, I was on this, this yes train for a long time just to, to work. And I do think, you know, when it, and I say this a lot and I believe it for myself anyway, that directing is not something that like I ever felt like I just could do. It's not something that I felt like I had the self-confidence to be like, I know what I'm doing when I get on set. Like, I do feel like I had to put in, I haven't quite racked up 10,000 hours, but close to it. I felt like I had to do it a lot in order to feel like this is what I do. So that was also why I kept doing it. (laughs) So do do you plan like going forward to be doing TV and then like in between features, so like go feature TV episodes, feature TV episodes, or like, do you feel like it's a thing that you could do together or is it going to be more like you just have to pick one and do that for a while and then go back to the other? I feel like the industry is so backwards when it comes to it. I personally feel like I should be able to go back and forth and do whatever, you know? Um, I think it's, what we're talking about is just like format. I mean, you're talking about theatrical, the theatrical film business. I don't know what to say about that. I don't think anyone does. And <laughs> anyone that claims to is just lying, right? So so I don't, I don't know how to calculate like that. And I know there is a difference between TV and movies in that regard. But otherwise, you're just talking about like a running time and format and like episodic versus like an unbroken storytelling experience. I, I don't, yeah, like... HBO Max dropping back. Like, I don't understand. Like, they made that movie for the streaming platform. Like, what is what is the argument? You know, what is this belief <laughs> that suddenly they're going to be able to, like, we're going to be able to go back to some sort of golden hued age of, like, where, like, the theatrical film business is their bread and butter. Like, we're just not there anymore. Like, and people just need to, like, get on board. So I feel, personally, and I'm, I feel like view, as a viewer, like, all I, I'll watch any of it. I'll watch a movie. I'll watch a TV show. I'll watch unorthodox like a four-hour movie as far as i'm concerned but it was a four-episode tv show as far as i'm sure like you know the award circuit is concerned so i always use that show also specifically as an example of like what is a movie and what is a tv show because it all seems like the same to me you know i have a a, a gendered question that i'm going to apologize for i'm apologizing for at the top and i'll probably apologize at the end but it's really a personal one and i think it applies to Alric as well even though it's it's gendered because women always get asked this question. How are you planning to decide on what to say yes to and what to say no to with the variables in your head of a family? Like, I guess I'm just saying, like, I'm very scared of not seeing my son for more than a few days. And so that weighs into some of my decision making. And I'm just curious how you how you feel and what you're thinking. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious how you have been navigating it. 
day shoots, never no overnights and really short shoots. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing my first commercial this month <laughs> for this reason. I was like, oh, okay, maybe if I got into that a little bit, like <laughs> those are much shorter, but I think it's just going to be a matter of like, I have to really feel like I am getting something more than just, it's not just the job, you know, at this point, which I feel like I'm in a privileged position to be able to, if I'm, if I'm able to say no, that means that like the things I'm saying yes to have to, there's has to be a reason for it. And it has to be something that has to do with us. It has to be providing some sort of salve for my heart, you know, like, and if it's not doing that, then yeah, exactly. Like, why would I, I mean, I do still, I'm going to have a mortgage. I have a mortgage. Like all these things are still going to have to be accounted for. So at some point I'm going to have to say yes, but I do think the equation is going to, it's like, it's going to have to mean something to me as much as my family means something to me in order for me to care. Cause it's so, at the end of the day, it's all, it's all so out of your hands, whether you're making an independent film or whether you're shooting a big like TV show that doesn't end up working for some reason, the, nobody's watching it. You know, there's so much stuff out there that like, I've worked on shows that nobody ended up watching and I've made movies that nobody ended up watching. And I know what it feels like to work that hard and have nobody care at the end of the day. And so it's like the process has to be worth it, right? Because it's like you have no control over the outcome in terms of how, how the world is going to receive the thing. Mm. So I think that's it's going to be about that. It's going to be like and knowing that, okay, like spending like did Outlander, right? Outlander, this was way before having a baby, but like I, I really enjoy Outlander. I enjoy the show, yeah. but I did it because I was like, I want to spend a summer in Glasgow with my husband and like, visit i have like cousins there i hadn't connected to in over a decade there was like there were life reasons i wanted to do that show as well where i just wanted to go like experience something in my life beyond just the show itself and i think a lot of my choices moving forward will end up being some version of that it's great yeah my plan is just make as much as i can before my kid goes into school so then i can just you know they can try with me if that's possible you know and then like worry about the school stuff later (laughs) yeah yeah no i mean there is that too like I don't I don't know how any of that will shape out when it comes to like school and like wanting to provide some stability for her like I don't know if we'll be able to I'm sure that will shape things differently and you know that's okay <laughs> we interviewed a family of filmmakers a few weeks ago and oh, yeah. they they figured out their own model of homeschooling and and making movies on the road but that's a very specific model sorry Alric go, go for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's what with co-directing with their I think 11 year old six six year old so yeah mother father and six year old daughter co-directors it sounds crazy awesome. but also also lots of fun <laughs> the DP for Queen of the South home, home spent so much time selling me on homeschooling because he homeschools his kids they've traveled the world with them every job wow he does his whole family comes with him and he's like they are like the greatest like they are just like these little artists that do that march march to the beat of their own drum and yeah i mean i i'm sure that's i'm sure that is a great choice too it's just like who knows who your kid who knows who your kid is gonna be like maybe maybe your kid will take to that maybe they won't i don't know it's like you can't predict I, i have no idea what the future will look like in that regard so i have a super nerdy question for you 
So you've done, like, Miss Marvel, The Punisher, Titans, like, all these awesome comic book characters, you know, in different shows. What do you do for your prep for that? Like, because, you know, you're taking on a huge responsibility, taking on, directing an episode of with these beloved characters that, like, us nerds, like, love so much and want to make sure that we're seeing them for the first time on screen, like, that they're being shown in a proper way. Do you go into, like, reading all the comic books and, like, getting a background of the characters? Or do you kind of just, like, looking at what is on the page and, like, doing your work based off of the scripts that are that you're being provided? All of it. I mean, there's a lot of hours to kill sitting in that office, like, between meetings and stuff, right? So, like, I'll definitely read all the comics. I'll definitely watch all the things. I'll definitely, of course, you know, I read the whole season and everything they give me and watch everything they've shot up until the episode I get. I'll read a lot of stuff on the internet. I'll go on, like, the wikis and I'll go on, like, the Reddit threads and I'll, I'll be really aware, maybe too aware. I don't know if they appreciate this. I never, like, say this to the showrunners or the people I'm working with, but I'm very curious what the dialogue, with Ms. Marble, I was very curious what the dialogue was already, you know, like in terms of what the fans wanted out of it and, and what they were nervous about. <laughs> they were nervous about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Go into it. I'll say that. I want it. I want to know. I want to know all of that, you know? And then I, but I don't know if any of that, none of that really like services the job as much as just like trusting and engaging with your department heads in an honest, authentic way. And like, and, and making sure that they are all understanding at least the core of what like the story and what the character, you know, what the, what, what the kernel of storytelling is really like, you know, about and, and, and working with the actors. I mean, I do think I ended up getting a lot of these like comic book, like genre shows, like one led to the other and then the other and other. But like, I do think what I've been effective at in those environments is, is working with the actors and giving them a space in which they can create as grounded of a performance as they can, because there's so much other shit going on around them that like, it's becomes very hard, right. To focus and just remember, like, this is what the scene is about. This is the last you, you were here and now you're, and you're going here. And this scene is how we're connecting those things. Just like being that person for them. Like, I think that that is something they need so much, especially on these big comic book shows on these like big action, you know, these, these shows with these huge set pieces, um, that that's why I found a, a groove there. All that stuff's got to help though. You know, like all that, re- that reading, hearing the fans, you know, I think that stuff, even if it doesn't feel like it matters, I'm sure it really does matter. And as a fan, I appreciate hearing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like with the Punisher, it's just like very, I mean, I didn't have to do much because John Bernthal, like he, you know, right. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> he nailed it. it was, he's incredible. <laughs> yeah. But I found myself really fascinated by what it is about, about Frank Castle and like, why is it that like he resonates? And I think John really understood that obviously from the inside out, but like the trauma, you know, like in the show really obviously was about his trauma and him reliving his trauma, like nearly every episode. Yeah. But I found all of that. I think that stuff is when you, dig into it it's it's like all of these things are about you know it's like i think i think about this a lot because i grew up hindu like it's like we had a lot of mythology (laughs) like we have a lot of stories about like gods and demons and like a lot of like kind of supernatural business happening and in the in an effort to kind of save humanity or to find some sense of our own humanity or find something kind of spectacular or kind of worth saving in our own humanity and i think all of these the reason all these things are so popular right now is that we're kind of searching 
you know, as a society, I think we're searching for something the same because I don't know, I was just watching MSNBC. I'm like, oh, right. The world is on fire and uh, (laughs) it's not stopped for nearly a decade now. I think that's a cue to, we have these kind of like more longitudinal questions, more like bird's eye questions. So it feels like a good transition to what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? First film I ever made. Well, because there's, I guess the first, I would technically call the first film I ever made. This documentary I made in an undergrad. It was a documentary of myself cyber stalking a film student that I had a crush on from afar. It was kind of about like how you could develop this whole relationship in your head without ever meeting someone. I still, I, I, I think I still have a great fondness for it. I think that I don't, I don't think I even really had a crush on that guy. I just thought it'd be very funny to make a movie about this. And I think I was onto something. Yeah. I feel, I feel good about that <laughs> one. I've made a bunch of other movies as an undergrad that I wouldn't necessarily feel as proud of, but that one I think was pretty good. <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I mean, Tommy Shlami, when I did Snowfall, Snowfall was the second episode I did. And he said like probably the most obvious thing, but I think about all the time, which is that every actor wants to be directed. Like, you know, like whether or not it's Ed Harris, which has worked with on Westworld or like Iman Vellani, who's never done anything before. It was Miss Marvel, like that every actor wants that, wants that to be directed. Now, what that means, what directing really means, I'm sure is what, and what, what actors want out of their directors, I'm sure is different based on, you know, who the actor is, but it just was a, it's a useful thing to hear, especially when you're about to direct a scene with Ed Harris and you're like, how do I even, how do I even approach him? But then I was like, oh, he wants me to approach, he wants to talk to me. I'm the person he wants to talk to. He doesn't want a million other people like fussing around, you know, like he wants to focus, but the person he wants to come to him and have a conversation is the director. And it was, it's important for me to remember that. <laughs> What's the worst filmmaking or storytelling advice you've seen, heard, witnessed, whatever? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, like I've been on shows where like the producing director or the pilot director will say like, just like, just make sure you get like the great shot, you know, like, because like, if you don't get it, then they, they'll just like, they'll, it'll be the first thing they drop, you know? Is like the just make sure like you get really cool sh- you, you you have like really cool shot and you get that first I'm like literally imitating the person that I'm <laughs> thinking of but I uh, I hate that advice because I'm just like I don't I don't think it's that feels very results oriented talk about result you know like that just feels like I, I'm I'm much more about like the organic kind of revealing of like what the process needs to be based on the rehearsal you know like we go in there with ideas for shots for sure and an idea of like how we want the scene to map out and how, you know, like an approach, but like, but I really believe in letting the rehearsal surprise you, you know? So I hated that advice. I like, yeah, but whatever. I just smiled and nodded and was like, of course, (laughs) a lot of what you have to do. (laughs) Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yeah. I mean, I just want, it's very maybe highfalutin, but I just want to feel like I don't think I've gotten there. I don't think I've made anything or done anything that has really felt like this pure channel from like what I want to say or what I want to express to like the thing, you know, like I'm trying to find that still that like that perfect connection. Filmmaking is such is so mediated. It's so diluted by the process 
that I hope that through the searching of and through the journey that at some point I can find that channel and, and create and make something that feels like un, unbroken in that way. Oh, that's beautiful. If you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Such a hard one, right? Because it's like, I think, um, I think you have to just go through it and to get where you are. I am a believer in that. I, I maybe mean, just don't be so hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think that I, I need to tell myself that now today, I need to tell myself that when I was 13, you know, like, I think that's one of the ones that I'd probably tell myself regardless. <laughs> the last question, which you can answer for TV, film, independent storytelling, but because the name of our podcast is Making Movies is Hard. So we always ask, is making movies hard? I think is making movies hard. I don't know why this is a hard question. because no, like, They're all hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> they are. They are. Yeah, it's like a good question. It's like a very distilled question, but it's quite hard to answer because I don't think making move like when you know what you want, you know, out of a shot or a scene, like that part is not hard. It's everything else. It's everything that conspires against you just getting there, you know? It's other people. It's their opinions. It's it's the location. It's the time of day. It's so I guess making movies is hard because it's all of those things. But like the actual like impulse to do it and your instincts and kind of like the desire. It's like the only reason I'm doing this is because I could, because it would be so much harder to have done anything else, you know? So in that way, it's not hard. It's like the only, the only thing I ever like felt like I could do, you know? So I, I, do you have a call to action that you like to share? Is it like follow you on Twitter or, you know, go watch all my stuff. (laughs) Is there like a CTA you want to share? Follow me on Twitter. Go watch all my stuff. No, just like enjoy your life. (laughs) Short. We're only here for a little bit. Auric, what do you remember about our chat with Mira? Oh, wow. Well, I was really looking forward to this one because I had seen a bunch of her episodes like right while we were talking about getting her on the show. I like was watching her episodes of For All Mankind and then like, you know, eagerly awaiting Miss Marvel to premiere and then watching her episodes of Miss Marvel. And yeah, so she was like, you could just tell like super talented, right? Like right off the bat. And then talking to her, it was really amazing to hear like the story of like kind of coming from the same beginning beginnings as us. Like, you know, made an indie feature for no money, scrapped it all together, didn't know what to do yet. Like, she literally is doing, did what I am doing now. Like, I am, like, cold emailing agents and managers and having no luck. And she did that when she, after her first feature. So, I felt like a real, like, connection to her in a way. Like, I, like, she's, she did what I am doing. And then, you know, she's got this feature that she got hired on. And, like, I'm trying to do that too. And you'll see if that works out for me. But yeah, it was really cool to just see, like, where she came from and where she is. And like how you can really catapult to the highest heights starting the way that, that, that anyone does, you know, and it just really kind of depends on tons of factors like luck and positioning and, you know, like skills and stuff. And I think that she was really smart in the way that she like, like once she like had the movie that got into Sundance and she was getting these opportunities to speak to managers and agents, she was very like focused in her goals. Like she wasn't wishy-washy. She wasn't like, oh, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. She was like, I want to be a TV director. I want to direct television. And like, 
she had that goal. And I think that part of that, I think that is a big part of the reason why she was so successful because she like knew what she wanted and she went after it rather than just like kind of waiting for something to come to her lap that she liked and fancied, you know, she was like, no, I'm going to go after it. And oh, it's not the type of thing I'm good at. I've never done special effects in sci-fi before. Like it's a sci-fi channel show that like, you know, whatever, like isn't what I want to be doing. It doesn't matter. Like she just went after it and did a great job at it. And like, yeah, now she's like, you know, done all the amazing things that like, you know, it's like, who, who doesn't want to have directed for these shows? <laughs> like Walking Dead, Punisher, you know, Teen Titans. I mean, it's like pretty amazing, like how, how far and wide her, like her directing skill has taken her. Like a man, a high cast, like, like all these shows, like huge shows. Like it's, it's really amazing. So that's what I remember most about her is just like her focus and like how smart she was about her career. But what about you? Yeah. No, I, this is one, this is such a wonderful conversation. I love this interview so much. And it's all, also is interesting because like Mira's a friend. I mean, we're not close friends, but she she's a colleague of mine and she was very kind to participate in a South by panel that I put together a few years ago about micro budget filmmaking. And so I had the context of her first film, Farrah Goes Bang, but I didn't know how she got equity. And I'd always had these assumptions of you know, I don't know, like a long pathway or intricate relationships or nepotism or, you know, I, I like read into like uh, not knowing how she got that amazing opportunity and then hearing how she really worked for it. It was a little bit of luck, but it was a lot of hard work. Like it's just so lovely yeah. to hear the details of the pitch for equity and then her stark honesty about how she should have advocated for herself more. That was so refreshing to hear. And also, I really liked the end of the conversation when you, when you left. Mira and I had a little off the record conversation, which, you know, like I told Jeff to cut and hopefully he did. But it was really nice just to have like this look how even though we're in starkly different places as filmmakers, her and I, we still were battling the same things like the imposter syndrome mm. or or how do we figure out balance in our lives or sustainability? Like it, she was very honest and vulnerable with us. And I love that. Awesome. Yeah, she's great. And she's a cute little baby, too. <laughs> so, Auric, it's time for the game. Woo. As a reminder, this is a game that our producer, Eric Toms, has devised. And it's a challenge. It's a blind challenge where one of us, Alric or I, asks the other what they would do in a hyper-specific production problem on set. All right. So here's Eric's latest question. And and just to tee this up even further, Eric asked us a question last week that we thought was too easy. So he's trying to step it up this time. So we'll <laughs> see how he stepped it up. All right. You are on day 17 of a 22-day shoot. You've been shooting out of order and you have to shoot your lead actress out in the next two days. I'm, I'm surprised you aren't taking notes. You're filming a period road trip <laughs> movie, but it takes place on a train as two young women are train hopping in the 1980s. There's more. There's a whole other paragraph, Ulrich. Upon arriving on set, your producer tells you that the train you've been shooting on was recalled and cannot be used for the remainder of the shoot. You have another train, but it looks very modern and in no way looks like a train you've been shooting with. I just want to take a second and just want to appreciate that Eric knows how much Auric loves trains. And I just really enjoy <laughs> the train specificity of this question. Okay, going back. <laughs> you have yet to film the climax of the film. And to make matters worse, your 
lead actress has to leave earlier than expected. Now you have to shoot her out by the end of the day as opposed to two more days. What do you do, Ulrich? What do you do? Well, well, just to be completely honest, he sent me this one thinking that this was the one for me to ask you on right. the next episode. But you said you no, didn't. No, again. Oh, he sent me another no. one. So the next one he sent was this one. No, Eric! <laughs> So you already heard this question. So you're like, just patient. I already read it. To me. Yes. Theatrically performing. Well, I think we should go ahead and have you answer it. And then I'll try to weigh it. On I'll answer it. Yeah. No, I, it was funny because I thought about it. I didn't like finish my answer. I thought about this, but I didn't like actually come up with my final, final answer. I just started thinking about what I would do. Right. And my answer all re- revolves around close-ups. Yeah. So I would just do lots of close-ups, you know, and try to cheat the angles so that it looked close enough, you know, and like have lots of um, shallow depth of field so that you don't necessarily can notice so much like what what the scene is and then maybe like bring in some props that we may have that were on the other train that could like you know help make it feel like it's the the right train even though it's not and then the other problem where I have one less day with the actor this is like a rewriting problem so then basically you know we have to just take the whole like the scenes that we have and then figure out a way like either to cut them or to like you know make them more concise so that we can get them done in the time that we have so like if we had a whole bunch of shots planned for something like maybe we cut all that coverage and we just do it in less less takes or we rewrite it so there's just less words and less things happen so you can like try to like because you know in, in filmmaking and storytelling generally with almost anything there's a way to do it with less words no words or to make that scene not matter <laughs> Right, so you could rewrite other things around it, so it's like okay, that scene doesn't have the same impact that it, that you thought it did, you know. Yeah. So I think like when you, when you get that information, like you basically whatever time you have, like you just have to figure out like how can you tell your story with the time that you have in a compelling way that doesn't like severely alter this the, the the story. And if that's not possible, if it's like you need every single thing that was in there, then you have to plan on a reshoot or a reschedule, you know, which is basically like kind of in the alternate. It's like, so what we did, it's like, okay, can we cut this or do we have to reschedule this? And, you know, most of the times it was either cut or, 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 or shorten. And then sometimes it was like, okay, well, let's push this whole scene out to our pickup days that are going to happen in two weeks or whatever, you know? So that would be my approach. But what about you, Liz? What will you do? A hundred percent agree with everything you said. The only thing that, that I thought to add is I work with an amazing production designer, Marcy Mao, and she has these tricks. Like we were trying to dress up a bathroom that didn't have a lot of style. And there's like these vinyl stickers you can put on a mirror to make it look no longer like a mirror. Or there's like different, Mm. you know, there's different floor samples you can buy in a small scale, like just a few squares that you can use to replicate different flooring. If the flooring of the train is different, you can add on new flooring and close-ups. I'm just saying like, I would look at the fixtures and I would look at the coloring. I would look at the background of the original train that you're so in love with. And I would see how do we replicate those in the background of that closer coverage that you're talking about? And how do you fake it in the close up with those art? There's art details, right? Like the replicating Mm -hmm. the floor and replicating the fixtures, doing some paint, maybe doing a small build on top of the train. It's more modern. Maybe it has more space, something like that. I mean, I know you don't have a lot of time, but I would I would actually look to art, art department as a way to help solve the problem. And obviously, I'd go to my editor and I'd see, you know, what are the circle takes and 
what of the train have we seen and what of the train haven't we seen? And is there a way to fake a new part of the modern train for a part of the original train we haven't seen yet? Totally agree. Closer coverage. And then I'd err on the side of cutting subplots. If you lose an entire, I mean, from the way you described it, you thought you had like way more time. Like you just found out the actress is going to be leaving one day earlier than you thought. Yeah. And a one day is a really meaningful amount of time. So it feels like there may be an entire yeah. subplot that you can cut. And and that's what I would err on the side of rather than trimming. It's like, is there an element of this film that I could take out that maybe was overcomplicated at some point? So that's yeah. that's what I would do. Nice. Awesome. I think that's a, a great solution and, and kind of different, similar thinking to me, but also a little different, you know, like like taking out the subplots. I think that's a, it's probably like a good note in general. <laughs> if your movie has a lot of subplots, maybe you don't need all of them <laughs> if you're looking yeah. to save time, you know. I think we both, did we both cut subplots out of our move, one of our movies? Didn't you cut a subplot out of yeah. um, Speed of Life? And I yeah. cut a subplot out of the alternate, I think. So yeah, subplots, you don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an awesome game. Thank you, Eric, as always, for the amazing question, even though <laughs> that's a funny switch up. You can always send us a question or comment or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know. Do you like the game? Is it boring? Is it great? We would love to know because I think Liz and I enjoy it more than the news segments. So if you guys aren't missing news and you like the game, we're going to keep doing it unless you hate the game. Even if you, yeah, we'll, we'll probably keep doing it either way, but just let us know. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies a Star Podcast. Make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer. So head on over to www.networkisa.org today to sign up for free. Thanks to Mira for coming on the show and putting up with my gushing fandom. I gush so much over her, but she's great, so I couldn't help myself. Uh, thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for the wonderful editing and to our producer, Eric, well, for just being completely awesome. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you all next week.